Well, good morning, church. It's a gift to be together with you like this. Privilege to get to open up God's word with lots of anticipation and expectation of what he has to say to each and every one of us. This weekend, uh, we find ourselves in the third part of our series on Moses, leadership lessons or lessons in leadership. And our aim has been to look at the life of one of the Bible's most famous characters with an attempt to try and glean some of the leadership lessons just naturally show up uh, in his life and in his story. If you were here two weeks ago when we kicked this off, our first week we unpacked the idea that leaders need to stay dependent, especially as it pertains to their relationship with God, living a life of surrender and trust and open-handedness to his leading and directing. Last weekend we walked through the idea that leaders are to and have the ability to act courageously as we watched and witnessed Moses confidently stand firm in the midst of overwhelming odds against him, ultimately leading the people of Israel miraculously towards their freedom. And this weekend, I hope to explore the importance of the need for leaders to seek counsel. Now, before we jump there, I have a little story to help frame all of this up, hopefully, for us. Now, I had never heard this story before, but on Tuesday, I was sitting with Greg for our weekly executive team meeting. Dwayne was away, so it was just the two of us, and I was describing this message and where I was kind of anticipating uh, it was headed, and all of a sudden, Greg jumped up. He was really excited, and he rushed over to his filing cabinet and opened it up and was rooting through it and then pulled pulled out a folder that he had held onto of, of documents from his very first church in Mesa, California, Harbor Trinity Baptist. Nailed it. Uh, so Greg, I could see the sideburns starting to grow back on his face as, as he was anticipating getting to see pictures of himself in bell bottoms and uh, no, it wasn't that long ago. I'm sorry. Um, but he pulls out this, this folder and he's rooting through it and there's these pictures of some of the people in his ministry. Uh, there's some old church bulletins. There's some of his first ever sermons that he preached. And finally he finds what he was looking for. And it was a document that he used to train his youth volunteers. And in it contained this little story that he thought could be perfect for this weekend. Now before I shared this story with you, I wanted to try and figure out is this story True. Is this something that actually happened or is this just a parable that somebody used to make a point? And best as I can tell with all of the research that I did on the World Wide Web, I think this story is actually true. Most indications pointed to this being a true story. It's a story that comes uh, from a document that was part of an insurance claim that an Australian bricklayer made back in the early 80s. Regardless, whether it's true or not, it was a parable that was too good not to share. It perfectly points us in the direction of where we're headed. So context for what I'm about to read to you. A bricklayer uh, found himself injured at work on the job, and so he filed an insurance claim to help cover his medical expenses and his leave expenses after the workplace accident. And after filling out the documentation under the, the, the first time, under the question, what was the cause of your accident, the bricklayer simply put, I was trying to do the job alone. The insurance company uh, noticeably was confused, and so they pushed back a few weeks later with a letter uh, requesting more information. What exactly does that mean? And this is the letter that the bricklayer then wrote. Dear Sir, I'm writing in response to your request for additional information for my insurance claim. 
In block number three of the accident claim form, I wrote, trying to do the job alone as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain that statement more fully, and I trust the following details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the date of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered there was about 500 pounds of bricks left over. And rather than carrying the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel using a pulley which was attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor level. So securing the rope at ground level, I went up onto the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went back down to the ground, untied the rope, and holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You'll notice in block number 11 of the claim form that my weight is 150 pounds. <laughs> Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded up the side of the building at a very alarming rate of speed. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains my fractured skull and collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until my fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep inside the pulley. By this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately that same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel then weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to the information on block 11 regarding my weight, and as you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. Again, in the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and lacerations to my legs and lower body. This second encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell on the pile of bricks, and fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks in pain, unable to stand, and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost presence of mind and let go of the rope. The empty barrel weighed more than the rope, so it came down upon me and broke both of my legs. I hope I have furnished sufficient information to explain why trying to do the job alone was the stated cause of the accident. Sincerely, a bricklayer. Now, if I were to summarize the lesson of leadership for this weekend, it would be this. Teamwork makes the dream work. And so with all of that in mind, we're going to jump into our text this weekend. If you have a copy of the Bible with you, I would encourage you to open it up to Exodus chapter 18. That's where we're going to be looking through that whole chapter. And to catch us up from last weekend, Moses has just led the people of Israel miraculously through the Red Sea. And the people are still en route, albeit their long roundabout way that we talked about last weekend of getting there, towards the land that had been promised to them. And we pick up of the story of Israel right in the middle of their season of wilderness wandering. And it's here that the people of Israel actually stay for 40 years. 40 years of instruction and preparation for the people of waiting and anticipating, which unfortunately would equate to 40 years of grumbling and complaining. During all of this, just before the famous moment on Mount Sinai when God delivers to Moses the, the tablets with the commandments, we pick up on our story for this weekend. And so let's jump there together. Look with me, chapter 18, starting at verse 1. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people, Israel, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. 
Now, the next couple of verses that, that walk us through kind of explain, we're not sure entirely when or why, but at some point during the midst of all that God was up to for the people of Israel through the deliverance and through the work with Moses, Moses decided it was a good time to send his wife and his boys to go be with their dad, their grandpa, Jethro, his father-in-law. And once all of the news gets back that the family of, of God has been rescued, that Israel is now settled, Jethro then sets out with Moses' family towards this Israelite camp to reunite the family, but also with the hope of hearing firsthand all that took place for the people of Israel. Picking up at verse 7, so Moses went to meet his father-in-law. He bowed down and then kissed him. They asked each other how they'd been and went into the tent. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had confronted them on the way and how the Lord had rescued them. Now, it's summarized here in just a couple of sentences, but likely Moses tells Jethro the whole story, all the way from the burning bush and his call, the plagues, the Passover, the miracles of the Red Sea. He recounts all of God's goodness and faithfulness to his father-in-law, Jethro. And then I love this little glimpse that we get, this little picture of what happens when the testimony of God's goodness is shared. You're going to see Jethro, he's in awe, he's filled with joy, and he worships the Lord as his God. Now, this is just a little mini bonus sermon, the sermon appetizer before the real sermon. Don't stop telling people around you the places in your life where God has shown up and done the incredible. Your testimony as followers of Jesus matter. They matter probably more so today than they ever did before, and they might be the very thing that leads someone closer to the person of Jesus. Looking at the story, verse 9. Jethro rejoiced over all the things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. He's rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. So we're caught up on the context, most of it. Moses then shares this meal with his father-in-law. They reconnect over dinner. And then the next morning, Moses invites Jethro, hey, come, come with me to work. Come and see what I'm up to, what my job looks like here as the leader of the people of Israel. Verse 13, the next day, Moses sat down to judge the people. And they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, why is this, what is this you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Jethro, we're going to see, is, is sharp. Uh, he's actually served in ministry, served as a priest to the Midianites, and so he has firsthand experience of what spiritual leadership looks like. And so he's here, and he's, he's watching, he's observing Moses, who is just slammed day in and day out with the needs of the people, and he asks Moses, don't you have anyone to help you? Why are you trying to do the job alone? And so Moses responds, verse 15, 
Moses replied to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another, and I teach them God's statutes and laws. Now, I added some emphasis. Your scriptures probably don't have me. They wouldn't have me capitalized there. I wanted to do that on purpose, because effectively, I think Moses is here saying, because I'm the leader. I'm the one who's looked at to make the decisions. I'm the one who has the direct connection to God. They need me. Without me, nothing happens. His response is that ultimately, all of this rises and falls on himself. He's the center of all the leadership needs of the people of Israel. But Jethro isn't buying what Moses is selling. And so he actually rebukes his son-in-law. He says, what you're doing is not good. Moses' father-in-law said to him, you'll certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Jethro, likely just observing, watching this line that's stretching out of Israelites who are hoping to engage with Moses, this line that appears to have no end and only gets longer, speeds up declaring, you're an idiot. <laughs> There's got to be a better way of doing this. He appeals to Moses himself. You're going to fry yourself out. But he also appeals on behalf of the people. They're going to burn themselves out while they wait in this giant line trying to cater to your individualistic way of leading. Thankfully for Moses, his father-in-law doesn't just rebuke him, but he offers some advice. Jethro's going to give Moses now a suggestion for a different way forward. Look at verse 19. Now listen to me, and I'll give you some advice, and God be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and the laws and teach them to weigh the way to live and what they must do. But you should select from all the people, able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophet. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. They should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring you every major case, but judge every minor case by themselves. In this way, you'll lighten your load, and they will bear it with you. If you do this, and God so directs you, you'll be able to endure. And also, all these people will be able to go home satisfied. At its core, Jethro is trying to help Moses see how he can develop a passive income and retire at the age 35, thereby setting up the very first Christian pyramid scheme. <laughs> Just kidding. Jethro's calling Moses to decentralize his leadership and to develop a team in an attempt to effectively care for the best and teach the people in the best way possible God's instructions and decrees. Building a core that would take another core and build into that core. Truly, he's calling Moses to multiply himself because right now Moses is actually the bottleneck. He's the reason why things are so inefficient and ineffective. And even though it wasn't his idea, Moses's idea, maybe even more unbelievable, it was the idea from one of his in-laws. Moses takes it to heart and he actually implements it. And he begins his journey of giving away leadership. It's a significant turning point in the story of the life of Moses and Israel. And it's a story that's rich in leadership lessons for each of us today. It ends like this, verse 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law, and he did everything he said. 
Now, Moses doesn't just listen to a good idea or just surround himself with good advice. He actually does something with it. He puts it into practice, and again, it truly changes everything for him and for the people themselves. It's a really practical story. I hope you see that. Uh, It's really applicable. So what does this story then today teach us about leadership? What are some of the lessons that, that we can mine from this? I'm glad you asked. First things first. Unhealthy leaders attempt to juggle everything and become everything to everyone. See, Moses had wrongly assumed that, that the only, he was the only one who, who could be capable of leading the people. He himself was the only one who could lead. And he was unable to see that, that he was ultimately the ceiling of the community achieving all that God had expected and hoped for it to achieve, regardless of how long the lineups had become. And leaders who are really unhealthy assume that they have to be at the center of everything, neglecting the power of delegation and collaboration. I'm not saying that's exactly what Moses was doing here, but it's a folly that I'm sure most of us have seen in leadership circles far too often. It's this savior complex that relies on them being the one who's always going to come and ultimately save the day. On the flip side, however, healthy leaders give leadership away. They recruit teams. They empower others to lead as well. The key to this, for sure, is going to be recruiting good people. Remember Jethro's advice to Moses that he should select all, from all the people, able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophet. But once you've got that good team, leaders actually need to let those leaders lead. Now, unhealthy leaders thrive on micromanaging and refusing to trust or believe in the capacity and capabilities of their teams. Because at the end of the day, deep down, unhealthy leaders, they're convinced that no one can do as good of a job as they can do themselves. But healthy leaders, on the other hand, understand that they are dispensable and they're comfortable with those who can surpass them working alongside with them. They do this by operating with a mentality of of high trust and low ego because they understand that at its core, leadership is not about them at all. And the best leaders, they recognize their unique strengths and their calling, and they focus their time and energy on the things that only they can accomplish. They don't get bogged down with the tasks that their team is very capable of doing, but they delegate to the right people to allow themselves to focus their energy on the things that are most important to their role. This was the Moses and Jethro story. Moses didn't need to do it all or be at the center of every single decision. He could be relied upon for sure when his team hit a roadblock that they couldn't overcome or came across a problem that they couldn't solve, but they were trusted to lead, which allowed Moses to focus his time and energy on the things that were the most important. So that's the lesson we see regarding delegation and empowerment. The other clear leadership lesson we see here is the need for leaders to seek counsel. See, unhealthy leaders love, they thrive in an echo chamber where dissenting voices are silenced and differing opinions are unwelcome. 
And so typically they surround themselves with people who will just tell them exactly what they want to hear. People who will say the same things that they themselves are already saying. They typically have no idea how to have hard conversations because they never need to have hard conversations. They have a bunch of yes people that surround them. But healthy leaders, on the other hand, not only welcome, but they actively listen to the counsel of others. They want it. They go looking for it. They build in people and systems and teams who will challenge their way of seeing things because they know that they don't have all the answers and they can't see all the scenarios and all the situations themselves. They know that they can't accomplish the job alone. Let's think about Moses for a minute. He was the top dog. God clearly marked him to be the alpha leader of the community of Israel and through him had performed tremendous and miraculous moments in front of all the people. The people of Israel would have absolutely had Moses on a pedestal. He could have been untouchable, unreachable, unwavering in his own way of thinking and acting, but Moses invited his father-in-law Jethro to come and evaluate, to come and see what he was up to, welcoming his feedback on a different way of doing things. The other important thing in all of this is that great leaders excel in turning good ideas into action, especially when those ideas didn't originate with them. They listen and they respond and they act on the counsel and wisdom of others. Now, the act of, of seeking counsel merely for the sake of counsel without a genuine intent for, for change really becomes futile. And I've watched numerous individuals trapped in a cycle of heeding advice without ever implementing the challenged perspectives. And predictably, the wise counsel eventually just withdraws, discouraged by the perception that their guidance is not seen as advice and instead is just seen as opinion. And as my... Famous colleague Wayne used to always say, opinion, that and a buck 50 will get you a cup of coffee. And one last thing, the best leaders never take credit for the ideas of others. The mark of a really great leader is one of humility, one that doesn't seize credit for ideas but simply tries to amplify the brilliance of their team. Now, if you didn't know this, uh, Moses was the one who's actually credited for writing the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, which includes Exodus that we've been working through. This is the story that Moses is telling, the one he wrote down. And so we should see the fact that he re recorded and included this moment as really, really important. Because Moses could have written all of this in such a way that he was the hero, right? That it, was, that it was his leadership, his brilliance, his wisdom and ideas that were implemented to create a far more effective and efficient way of leading. See, unhealthy leaders have to be the heroes of every story that they tell. But healthy leaders know that they're better with others and they celebrate the contributions of those around them more than they celebrate their own contributions. And that's an important distinction. That's a big difference. Maybe more so today than, than ever before. If you're in the business sector, you lead in some way, shape, or form, I hope you see this, you get this, because the next generation of leaders that's eventually going to take over, they are not satisfied or content with their contributions being used to puff up their bosses. 
And the skeptical world around us has less and less time for high-ego individuals holding key places of leadership. So where do we go from here? How do we put all of this into practical action? If you're here and you know, you see yourself, you're looked to as a leader, you likely might already have some next steps. However, as we've emphasized over the last two weeks, we genuinely believe that every single one of you holds places and positions of leadership and influence in various aspects of your lives. And so a message like this should absolutely be relevant to each and every one of us. And so I'd love to just propose a couple practical questions for you to ponder, to consider, to meditate on, to hopefully help you take this and apply this over your next week. First thing is this. Who are the people in your life that you're surrounding yourself with who are helping to guide your decisions? Who are the people who will challenge your thinking and push you to continue to become a deeply rooted follower of Jesus? I hope for most of you there's right away, you know, one or two names that, that can come to mind. But, but for some of you, maybe there's, there isn't yet. And I hope that you see that as a, as a gap, as a need, and as an opportunity to do something different. Gordon MacDonald, a U.S. pastor, author, theologian, used to say that if you don't have good, close relationships, so much of what God wants to say to you won't ever be said. Let that sink in for just a moment and then again consider who is along with you for the journey of your life, walking with you closely enough to be able to speak into you. You heard us talk about this a few times already today, but around here, this is the goal and heartbeat of our group's ministry. We're trying to put people in, in together close enough in proximity to be able to support, encourage, and challenge one another towards a personal and deeper experience with Jesus. And so if you're not in a group, you're, you're coming into our church in a fantastic season that we're moving into as next week we start our open house and we'll have some pretty easy on-ramps and next steps towards group life here at Sherwood Park Alliance. So that's the first question. Who are you surrounding yourself with that'll help guide you? The flip side of that question, the harder part of that question, the opposite side, maybe even more important side, is are there relationships in your life who are giving you bad advice? Are there people who actually don't have your best interests in mind, but rather their own agenda? People who are actually moving you further away from where you are called to be. And if you have a quicker time naming some of those people, I want to encourage you to think about it. It might be time to cut some of those ties, or in the very least, create some very clear boundaries in order for those voices to be of less and less importance to your story. And that's really hard work to do. Pastor Andy Stanley always says, the people who are closest to you are a preview of the future you. And so choose wisely who's in your sphere. And lastly, on the other end of things, when you think about the spheres of influence in your life, of your leadership, my question for you to consider is how are you doing with the development and empowerment of others? Do you have people in your life that you can identify right now that you're mentoring, that, that you're training, that you're pouring yourself into, that you're giving away your wisdom and skills and abilities to, who you're discipling, who you are helping elevate, people in your life whom you're giving meaningful and fulfilling opportunities in order that they might soar. 
And again, if you can't think of one or two names, I'd encourage you to start. Start now. Start looking for those people in your spheres, identifying them and making a concerted effort towards helping them rise. Parents, let me talk to you for a minute as well as talk to myself on this one. Are you letting your kids try to do things on their own? Without hovering over them to make sure everything's going to be okay? Are you empowering them to be self-sufficient? Are you giving them opportunities to do things that at the end of the day, you know if you took over and did yourself, they'd be done better and more efficiently? But are you letting them try even though you know they probably will fail? If you were here four or five weeks ago, I joked and I told a story about my job as a kid in the garage holding the flashlight for my dad as he worked under the hood of our cars. But in all seriousness, because of that today, I'm far more capable of holding a flashlight than I am fixing our vehicles. (laughs) It's funny, but it's kind of sad. And I'm really praying for a different story for, for my kids. Our call as people of influence is to influence others towards influence, to pass along and to develop and empower those who are within our sphere, and to continue to remain humble enough to take the advice and wisdom of the ones around us that we trust. And next weekend, we're going to wrap this all up. Greg's going to put a bow on top and say it's done. And he's going to try to answer the question, how? How do we go about developing others and what does development look like? So be sure to join with us for that. But for this weekend, I'd invite you to stand and I would love to just pray uh, for us and with you. So let's pray. God, I am, I continue to be so grateful and humbled um, for your word, your sacred word, which has been preserved for centuries, millennial, that we have, that we hold in front of us, that is directly from you, that we can come to, that we can look at and see um, so much um, relevance and truth that can guide and direct our way forward. And as we've wrestled through um, conversations about leadership and being leaders who are marked by by godliness and wisdom, leading in the way that that you've instructed and you've ultimately given as an example of leadership. I pray that you would empower us to be different, that in our areas of influence, our schools, in in our workplaces, that we would be seen as leading different because you have had impact and you've touched our lives and our souls and we desire something better. And as a result of of us taking efforts to lead differently, I pray that that your name would be magnified, that you would be glorified, that it would lead people to ask the question, what is different about you? And would give us opportunity to just speak about Christ himself. The one who led in this way in profound ways, the one who grabbed 12 and said, you've got this. And those 12 took it and ran with it and developed and and planted churches and poured into leaders. And we now stand here 2,000 years later, the benefactors of this type of leadership working its way out. And so give us courage, give us wisdom, give us humility to lead in all the ways that you're calling us to lead, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, church. Thank you for being with us. We look forward to finishing this up with you next weekend. Take care.